All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Today, I have the co-founders of a company called Talich. Uh, we have Matt and Adam. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having us. Thank you yeah, so much for being on. here. So I thought maybe we could start out with a little background. Um, if you guys could maybe tell us, you know, how you ended up partnering and starting uh, Talage, and also maybe give us a little, uh, you know, elevator pitch of like, what is Talage? What do you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So Matt and I have been partnering together for a long time. Actually, uh, we grew up together. Matt's mom was actually my fifth grade teacher. Uh, <laughs> we we're co-captains of our high school football team together. So we've nice. been uh, we've been partners long before Talage ever existed, but. Uh, after college, I, I got into the insurance industry and started working for regional and national brokers and, and always working in the small commercial business, uh, insurance business space. And then I eventually moved my way up the distribution channel, worked for an insurance company. And that's really when it started to become kind of obvious how underserved the small business segment was in the commercial insurance space. You know, small business owners needed help. Right. Traditional agents just couldn't help them. Um, and it's not, not their fault. They're not bad guys. Um, they just didn't have the tools and the economics to make any sense. They just couldn't afford right. to focus on that segment of business. And so really the idea behind Talage was make it easier for small businesses to buy insurance. Um, and, and we kind of kept it that broad on purpose because, you know, we have, we have a lot of ideas about what that means. But essentially Talage is a software solution that allows a small business owner to log on to our system hit our website and, and go from start to certificate in less than 10 minutes. Uh, we've, we've integrated with A-rated insurance companies so they can compare quotes um, and actually buy something right there online. So. That's awesome. Yeah, and I know I can speak from personal experience as a business owner that uh, it is ridiculous how complicated it is <laughs> to buy business insurance, and it's not even that expensive. It's like, why are you guys adding all this paperwork to your process? You're not even making any money. <laughs> no, it's a hassle. I mean, even when we were, when we first were setting up college, it was kind of funny. You have to be, you have to have insurance before you can sell insurance. Um, to get your insurance license, and you have to have the insurance in place. And we were kind of joking that it was it was so difficult to get insurance. And it was, it was like <laughs> the, the only somebody could do something about this. Yeah, you knew you were on to something when you got your own insurance. <laughs> Well, the, you know, the real reason I wanted to have you guys on today, of course, is because um, our industry, the merchant services industry, is really going through a, a change. And so, you know, there's a lot of people listening who have, you know, teams of agents and things like that who have been out in the field selling. And so the real challenge, of course, one of the big challenges is trying to figure out how do we reach these small business owners? You guys have done a, a really good job of that. I know it's it's always a challenge when you're starting a business from scratch, um, but I just, I don't know, it seems like it's really, really challenging to target small business owners online. So I'm really kind of curious, how did you guys actually start out? How did you get your first few, like your first 10 or 15 uh, business clients to, to buy insurance through your company? Yeah, I mean, our first, you know, our first ten or fifteen is pretty unglamorous and probably similar to the way a lot of a lot of people start out. I mean, the first ten or fifteen, we were calling up people that we went to school with, sure. um, you know, people that we knew from, you know, our just our business networks and our past careers. And so the first ten or fifteen, um, like I said, were were not glamorous. They were really just kind of hitting up friends and saying, sure. "Hey, we've got an idea for a product, and, and we think we can do this." And so, right. Um, that's yeah, you really gotta you gotta you gotta you gotta test the waters and you know make sure it's uh, make sure you got a good product, right? So, so you got those first ten or fifteen. Um, then you're like, okay, we want to scale this thing and we want to create something that's you know duplicatable, scalable. What was the next step in kind of the marketing iteration to to grow? Yeah, so you know, as we've kind of started to grow after those initial groups, we we've really been focused initially on digital marketing. You know, 
the tools that are out there today makes it really easy to get a presence, you know, whether it's sure. social media ads, AdWords um, campaigns, things along those lines, you know, you can do direct email campaigns. Um, and we've really kind of tested all of those, you know, and the great part is to, you know, businesses are being more and more specific about what they are and what they're looking for. So you can be really specific in the types of campaigns you're running and things along those lines. So that was kind of the, the second wave after we were, you know, basically calling our friends and family. And then the next big focus for us that we've really been started to push since Q4 is distribution partnerships. And we're doing those on both a large and a very small scale. You know, businesses sure. today, and this is really any type of online consumer, whether it's an individual or a business owner, they're going to their trusted resources and they are looking to those resources for suggestions on where they can get other resources. You know, so when I talk about distribution partnerships on the big scale, today we're working with a couple of national banks where we are their preferred insurance partner. So sure. if you're a small small business banking customer with one of these guys and you log into the, your portal, they'll have a resources tab and they'll have lots of different resources that they recommend and we're the insurance partner for those guys. And then on the flip side, on a smaller scale, and we're actually working with in much smaller communities. We're working with local CPAs, um, local payroll companies, guys along these lines who um, are directly interacting with businesses and have worked with these businesses for a long time and have their trust. And so we've spent time getting to know these guys so that they trust us and they believe in our product and then they're comfortable recommending it as well. Sure. And I want to dig into this a little more because in our industry, I've actually noticed a, a trend that same direction as I talk to successful sales agents. A lot of them have built these referral networks or distribution networks, as you call them. Um, so, you know, when you got started in that, would you say that like there, there's always to me two advantages to this? You know, one is the financial implications. And so, you know, you might go to a referral partner and say, hey, I'll give you X amount of money if you send me business. Um, so that's an advantage. The other advantage, of course, or challenge is like, you know, reputational where it's like, you know, the CPA yep. wants to find a good company where their clients aren't going to get screwed. So talk about how you balance those out when you're, when you're building a new referral relationship, uh, or a distribution channel, how do you balance those two things out and how important have you found that each of those two, uh, you know, are in that, in that equation? Yeah. You know, and in just to kind of start by addressing that last question in terms of what's important it's between those two it's going to vary depending on who you're talking with right um so you know when we start those conversations it's always first about why talent is so unique compared to anything else in the market and then from that it very naturally goes into why there's value add here for your customers um and sometimes you know the, some of our distribution partnerships that's as far as it goes you know they don't even want to get involved in the economic piece of it they want to build their reputation with their customers as a go-to resource right um on the flip side we certainly have other partners that are much more driven by the economics and we do have um referral programs um for business that's driven to us so it's very much you know depends on who you're talking to and you know in a nutshell they're both really important yeah you know it's so i want to circle back to this online marketing stuff but i have to ask one more question about this because this is interesting um so yeah. so when you're initially reaching out let's say a cpa or you know whatever local maybe a smaller kind of referral partner um, how do you approach that? I've always found that was always an awkward thing for me of, you know, I'm talking to the CPA or whatever, because it's like you said, you know, some of them are almost offended that you're offering them financial, you know, consideration for, <laughs> for the referral yeah. and others are going to be offended if you don't. So do you have any tips about that? I mean, how, how do you guys approach a new referral partner to kind of explore, you know, what do they want out of the relationship? Yeah, I've found that it, it's 
much more advantageous to focus on what you're bringing to the table and the, the value that you're bringing to their customers. Um, and then from there, when they get bought in on the idea and they understand the value you bring, it will very naturally go to the next piece of, you know, if they're driven by the economics, they are going to bring it up. You know, I, you know, I always, yeah, every partner that we work with, um, I will bring up the point of economics at the end just so that they know it's an option. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically, if it's important, they will bring it up before I do. Yeah, really good point. Okay, good. I like that. So basically, before you go in to yeah. talk to the referral partner, you want to make sure that you've got a really solid handle on your own value proposition, what sets you apart, and why it would be a benefit to their clients and their relationships. And you want to focus on that and then let them kind of dictate their side of it after that. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, absolutely. Because you know you want to make sure you have your value prop clear because – um, they have to be excited about it. You know, if it's even if they are driven by economics, they have to make sure they see the value in what you're bringing before they would push it out to their customers. Because if sure. you have something that has great economics but it's not attractive to their customers, it's not going to drive anything for them. You know, yeah. um, there has to be a very clear value problem. Well, and like you said too, I think they have to be excited about it as well just to present yep. it because it's like. You know, a lot of people get this mistaken idea like, oh, I just signed a new referral partner. I just made money. No, you didn't. You just signed a new referral partner until they refer somebody who didn't make anything. So they have to be excited enough about it to be like, hey, you know what? Actually, that reminds me. I was just talking to these guys that have this really exciting thing you should check out. So it's like they have to have that excitement level as well, I believe, right? Yep, 100% agree. Cool. Okay, let's circle back to online marketing for a second. So kind of going back to talking about different channels and stuff. So I heard you talking a little bit about uh, Google AdWords. So with Google AdWords, the benefit there, of course, is you can target people based on, you know, you know that they're searching for business insurance or in our case, merchant services or whatever. Um, So did you have a lot of success with that? And talk more about that in detail. Did you go into like the Google, um, the extended ad network on other websites? Did you follow people around the web? Like give us some ideas, like what, what tips and tricks would you share of how to use Google AdWords to target businesses? Because I know it can be really expensive. Yeah, it can be really expensive. And I say that that would be the tough, most important thing is to make sure you're tracking what you're spending and what it's bringing in. Um, because you know, I don't know as much about merchant services, but business insurance, it's a really expensive space when you start talking about yeah. AdWords. Same um, with, so same with merchant sure services. Yeah. Yep. So you do need, always need to make sure you're tracking that and making sure it's backing out um, for you, you know, I would say what we've done that's had a lot of success for us is we do a lot of different campaigns and we test a lot of different things. Um, you know, we have a lot of different landing pages um, based on the different types of search terms we want to do. You know, we'll do mm-hmm. business insurance for restaurants and we'll have a landing page for that and we'll cater it to those different types of the guys. So we'll do a lot of different campaigns and we're always testing to see what has the best ROI. Hmm. Yeah, it, it seems to me like the the two big misconceptions I think with people who are new to something like Google AdWords is, you know, number one, they get it in their head that this is, um, you know, like a one size fits all thing. Like I just want to search for a general term to get the most traffic, and they don't, mm-hmm. you know, they don't really segment. And then the other thing is they don't understand that it really can be an ongoing, recurring thing. So like I would imagine you guys probably have some Google AdWords campaigns that you've had running for months on end because you found a good niche and there's a certain amount of search traffic every month. You got your bid, you've got it going to the right landing page and right. And you've got like that consistent conversion going on. Absolutely. You know, I mean, we're still, we think of ourselves as a relatively new company. You know, we've been live in the market for just about two years now, but we're, we're at a point now where we have campaigns. We know we'll 
we put in X amount at the top of the funnel, we know we'll come out at the bottom. Right. Um, but also having said that, we're always trying new campaigns. Sure. And I, th- I think for our industry, you know, one of the really unique things about it is that, you know, most sales offices and agents, you know, they do have ways of making money initially when they get a sale. And so to me, it's like, if you can figure out how much does it cost to buy a new client relationship, yep. you know, that's really, really powerful because yep. then all you got to do is go find the money to buy that many, you know, buy as many as you can uh, and how much scale you can get out of Google AdWords, which can be pretty significant. Um, but again, like you said, it's it's still segmenting that so that you're you're not targeting everybody with the same landing page. You really want to segment based on what people are searching for, right? Yeah, that, from our experience, that's what's worked out best. Obviously, every industry and every business is, um, experience is going to be different. So that's the thing I would say is just sure. every time you launch a Better campaign, time. you know, just go into it with an open mind and see what happens. Sure. What about Facebook ads? Have you guys had any success there? I know it's a little tougher because of the, you know, you're not targeting based on search. I mean, have you, have you guys had any success yeah. on the Facebook side? We've had limited success on the Facebook side. You know, I mean, one of the great things about AdWords is because, you know, people are doing a search, so there's clear intention. And when you talk about our product being small business insurance, it's something that these businesses typically are really only concerned with one month out of the year. Um, so the one way to make sure you hit them in that month is if they're searching for it. Um, so having said that, you know, Facebook, I think hmm. for the right business could be really helpful um, and could be really effective. It has not been great for us. Sure. No, and you know, it hasn't been great for me either, uh, to be honest, uh, other than, yeah. you know, if, if I pair it together with feet on the street, as far as like, I have a email list of a thousand businesses, um, then I can retarget them on Facebook, but sure. really yep. tough. I found to, and even, you know, I've done like lookalike audiences on Facebook and it can work, but it's, it's a challenge because of the targeting. It's like, it's so much cheaper than Google AdWords, but it ends up being yep. more expensive a lot, a lot of times because, you know, you're, you're, you have to target so many people to find somebody that's a qualified buyer if you don't have a, an email list or something already. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, and that's the important thing, too. You know, so many of these types of online places where you're running ads are going to throw the metrics at you that they want you to look at. So, like you said, Facebook's yeah, right. cheaper. Like, it's going to have a lower cost per click, but those clicks aren't translating into sales. It's not worth it. Um, So that's an important thing. Like I'll tell you one, one really interesting idea. I'm curious if you guys have tried this or thought about it. Um, You know, one thing I've done is I'll, I'll leverage Google AdWords to drive targeted traffic to a landing page, but I know I'm not going to convert, you know, maybe I'm converting on a good landing page 20% or 15% or even 10%. So I know there's a, a huge majority of the people that are not converting. So one thing I found is by driving that traffic there and then using a Google pixel, I'm sorry, uh, Facebook pixel on that page to grab, okay, here's all the people that were searching for, in your case, business insurance, then I can retarget them. So I'm kind of like getting more bang for my buck out of the Google AdWords. Um, so I don't know if you yeah. guys have tried that at all, but that's something I, I've, I've done. That's kind of the only way I've really found to like, it's just hard to build an audience of small business owners on Facebook. Yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting. So we've done things similar to that, um, retargeting within AdWords and other tools, but they actually haven't tied that AdWords to Facebook remarketing. I kind of like the idea. Yeah, so that's anyway. not something we tried. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, all right, awesome. So, okay, a couple other questions for you here. So, one of the one of the things I want to talk about was kind of the content marketing. So, I think one of the confusions, um, as you know, people are in an industry like ours, it's you know, and even like insurance, it's a little bit older and and things like that, and they're trying to figure out how to make this shift. Um, you know, there's a little confusion between paid 
uh, online advertising like Facebook ads, Google AdWords, and then there's content marketing where you're educating uh, people. And, and a lot of times these two things come together, of course, because you bring yep. people to the website, you educate them. So here's my question. Um, I think there is a lot of similarities between the insurance and the and the merchant services. Both of them, people are looking to save money, um, long-established processes. How important has content marketing been in terms of educating people when they get to your website or whatever? What role does that play, if any, in the process? Or is it just, let's go buy customers, get them to convert, we're done? Yeah, as you kind of alluded to, we kind of think of the content piece in two parts. One is having enough content on the website that people understand what they can do there. You know, what is right. your product? And then the second piece is the content for marketing purposes. Um, so admittedly, you know, we spent a lot of time on that first part as we were launching the product. The second piece is a relatively new focus for us. Um, okay. Just we have the belief that, you know, if you're going to do the content marketing, make sure you're doing it um that you're doing it well and that you're doing it consistently. Yeah. So we held off on kind of a lot of that. And so we were able to grow our team in the fall and now we have someone owning our digital marketing and he's able to really do the content um, in a much more concerted and consistent effort. So we launched our blog at the start of this year and um, we're making sure that we have um, at least a weekly post and we're making sure that it's relevant to our customers. It's not, every post is not always about insurance. Right. It's something that um, our small businesses will find relevant. Um, you know, early on, it's a lot more insurance just because we're building up that content. And now as we're kind of building up that content, we can do more marketing based around that content. And that, so that, like sure. I said, that's something we're very early on in the process of, but it's right. definitely something we believe in. Yeah, I think it's so I think it's so fascinating because again it's like it's kind of a weird thing because you know we're both in an industry where you know business owners they know what, it, what business insurance is all about. I mean, they they get it. Um yep. same with merchant yep. services like they get it, but you know the challenge is like, you know, finding ways to tell stories that they want to read but at the same time that are compelling and that have, you know, your, you know, the things that differentiate you from everybody else in an, in a crowded industry and I think that's always a challenge. Yeah. Totally agree. Okay, so a couple other things here. So, um, you know, we do have ISOs and agents in the industry, in our industry, that do have data, you know, email addresses, other information on small business owners, maybe phone numbers, you know, whatever. Um, Do you guys have any thoughts on, you know, retargeting with online marketing or how are you going after businesses? I assume you guys are collecting data whenever you can from these businesses. So what are you doing to go back and, and try to retarget and sell people that made that first touch or that first interaction with you, but they didn't move forward? Yeah, so when you guys make that first, when businesses make that first kind of interaction with us and it, when we're collecting emails, you know, part of that content piece I was telling you about is we are now launching a quarterly before. And again, the only reason we didn't do that earlier is just because so much going on, so few people, we wanted to make sure we were in sure. a position where we could do it right. And so now at this point, we are doing a quarterly newsletter. That's our regular kind of touch point with small businesses, you know, and I am a big believer in email marketing. Um, the big thing there is, just make sure you have content that's going to be relevant and interesting to the businesses you're sending it to. You can't simply sure. be an ad for your business or else they're going to unsubscribe really quickly. Right, right. Um, yeah, and then the other thing is finding the balance in terms of how often you want to get in front of them. You know, I mean, from our standpoint, you know, small business insurance is not something they're buying every day. So we've made the decision we want to have a quarterly touch point with them via email. So it's the idea that it's enough that, you know, when they're going to spend, a, a you know, that one month of the year to think about it, we're touching them enough that hopefully we'll be top of mind. Um, but yeah, in general, I'm a big believer in email marketing. 
Sure. Yeah. So, so what I hear you saying, and that's really interesting, is it's kind of like you know you wanna you wanna reach out to these people enough that they don't forget who you are and what you do, but not so much that you annoy them and they unsubscribe from your list. Is basically what you're saying, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's similar to the content you're giving them too. You know, it can't just be about your business. It's got to be something that they find interesting and relevant and helpful every time you you hit their inbox. Yeah, and that that's a really good segue actually to my next question because another similarity I I see and one reason I wanted to interview you guys is because both insurance and merchant services uh, can be perceived by business owners as boring. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, boring is really bad when you're trying to market stuff. You know. Um, what has kind of the balancing been for you guys in terms of your, you know, if you've done video marketing, have you done things like, you know, your landing pages when you do that, how are you going after this to make insurance not boring or are you just embracing that it's boring and here's the information you need to make a, a quick and efficient decision? You know, what's, what's the balance there? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we're, we're not as concerned as much with the idea that maybe the perception of insurance being boring, you know, what we're really more concerned with is that the perception that insurance is really important. You know, I mean, the majority of these businesses are legally required to have insurance. Sure. So whether it's boring or not, they're going to be buying it. Right. And so, again, we're focused on making it as simple as possible for them. So when we have multiple landing pages for all the different industries and all of those industries from an information perspective are catered to what those businesses need. Um, so we want to be known as the go to resource where not only is it easy to buy insurance, but it's easy to make sure you're buying the right insurance. Hmm. So it's like a like a peace of mind type of us a thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're we're more than comfortable being known um, as a boring solution as long as it's also known as a really effective solution. <laughs> sure. So that's really I interesting. Think there's also, James, Go ahead. Just to kind of jump on with that, that yeah. I think there's some things you can do to you know not take yourself so seriously, right? I mean, it is it is a boring industry. It's not it's you know not as sexy as some of the other ones. Right. So I think you know in terms of our content, especially, I mean, the way we write it, I mean, we want it to feel like. You know, you're talking to your buddy who sells insurance, right? I mean, that's kind of yeah. like we had a blog post go out this week where, you know, just letting you know that that a zombie horde is not usually covered by a general liability property policy, right? Like, so, I mean, just like <laughs> sure. silly things like that that are, yeah. you know, just a little tongue-in-cheek and, and just kind of lighten it up a little bit. Yeah, you know, one one thing I'm a really big proponent of is I think a lot of people make the mistake of trying to hire somebody to write their content for them where – I think the content comes across better when you take the first stab and make your rough draft and then hire somebody to edit it and make sure the grammar and the spelling and everything, the punctuation is all correct. But, you know, keep it where, you know, you're the one talking about it because otherwise I think it does end up, you can just tell, you know, when somebody hired a copywriter to write all their content, it's kind of like, it does sound boring because it's like they're, they're not talking like a real person, you know? Totally agree. And, you know, I mean, majority of our blog posts, um, you know, is either handled by our, our marketing in-house, um, our marketing exec, or Adam and I. And, you know, as Adam mentioned, his entire career has been insurance. He knows his stuff inside out. Sure. So, you know, from that standpoint, the content really starts with Adam. And, you know, we certainly get some help from, um, you know, our marketing lead to maybe make it a little more entertaining. And as Adam said, a little bit more lighthearted. Sure. But in terms of the content and what is going to be important for businesses, we're, we're leaning on Adam's, you know, industry expertise. And the fact he's been doing this for 15 plus years. Sure. Yeah. You know, it is so funny to me, the content. I think it's uh, it's almost counterintuitive to people that I think people are so scared to put content out there because they feel like they might have misspelled something or it's not exactly correct grammatically or something. And the, and the irony is most people today, when they read a post, they almost enjoy seeing a little you know, imperfection of like, oh, wow, like I think a real person actually wrote this, you know, not a robot. Yeah. <laughs> 
Absolutely. <laughs> it's funny. Well, this has been really good information. Um, you know, again, I, I'm really excited that we were able to share some some things. Hopefully this will get people in our industry thinking about how they can apply this to, to you know, market online and to target business owners. Definitely before you guys go, though, I know you have this affiliate program, a reseller, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and you're talking to, you know, a couple thousand salespeople here and, and uh, people that have sales teams and stuff. Talk a little bit about, you know, we're, we're both in similar uh, prospect bases going after the same uh, company. Companies. What do you guys have in terms of affiliate reseller stuff that uh, that might be of interest to people listening? Yeah, and uh, I mean Matt kind of touched on it earlier, but we've we've built a network of you know we're calling you know small business trusted resources, and it's it's bookkeepers, it's CPAs, it's lawyers, um, and, I, and I think you guys fit in, you know, merchant sellers fit in perfect to that. Um, you know, we're, like you said, we're talking to the same businesses. We're talking to you know your Main Street retail shops, restaurants. Uh, you know the businesses that we all you know frequent every single day, and so we're looking for you know networks that can help us touch those guys. Um, we think we can add another talking point. Um, you know, if, you know maybe merchants. You know, if it's not a lead for somebody else, maybe they can hey pique your interest with hey have you ever looked at your insurance? Because I mean, really, when you look at small business insurance, the only way you can guarantee that you've saved money is that if you shop it around. And so, sure. you know, you can get five percent off of something, but you know that. The five percent could be off of a lot bigger number than another number, right? So right. the only way to really know if you're getting a good deal is to, is to really shop it around. And Talich brings a unique solution for small business owners because we can instantly do that and do it in a way that's efficient and streamlined. Hmm. And so um, having an affiliate program um, for for people just like you guys, and basically, I mean, it's, it's really simple. We try to keep it simple. We just give everyone a link. Um, you can send an email to affiliates at talagein.s.com. Uh, T-A-L-A-G-E-I-N-S dot com. Um, we can get you set up. We'll set you up with your own link. Um, I mean, it's important because, generally speaking, um, if you're not a licensed insurance agent, you can't sell insurance. It's pretty straightforward, but you can definitely recommend it. Say, hey, sure. um, if you haven't looked at your workers' compensation lately, check out this link. We'll handle sure. it from there. Um, we do pay a referral fee, just a, a flat $50 um, per policy fee, which um, when you look at, at you know an average small business, they're buying two or three policies, and so you know that fifty dollars becomes a hundred, hundred and fifty dollars pretty quickly, and that's a, an annual recurring fee that we're paying for the affiliate program. So, you know, can add up, uh, you know, as you as you build a book of business on this, and sure. um, just one more kind of arrow arrow in your quiver, as they say, something else, another talking point as as you're building a relationship and building rapport with the small business owners. Um, one thing I'm kind of curious because, you know, most of the people listening are at some point in their pitch talking about savings. You know, they're, they're saving the merchant money. That's a big part of the value proposition. A lot of times they're trying to, you know, take those savings and then, you know, reinvest it into a new point of sale system or whatever. But, um, you know, when we're talking about savings, do you guys have any kind of public numbers that you share with people when you're talking to them? Like we can usually save you X percentage or our average savings. Like, do you have any, any, any uh, kind of, you know, numbers like that or lines that you use when you're talking to people? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the numbers kind of check out somewhere around that. We, we hate to use Geico's, uh, you know, numbers, but usually it's, you know, 15% is kind of just coincidentally where it shakes out. But in insurance, right. it's, it's interesting because you have such a, a variance between companies, right? I mean, we had a, a restaurant in Sonoma, California that was, you know, I mean, it's a big restaurant. They were paying $30,000 in workers' compensation, and we wrote it, um, got them a quote for 11000 I mean, so um, – it's significant savings. And then, you know, those, some of those are a little bit outliers if they haven't shopped their insurance around in a long time or sure. whatever. But I mean, so you can really, you know, it, it kind of checks out to about 15%, but the savings is worth the effort um, a lot of the time just to kind of get a spot sure. check on where you sit. Sure. Especially since the effort is not much with your guy's solution, right? Yeah. I mean, 10 minutes, you know, 
Washington City, ten percent, right? Right. Um, I mean, we could definitely, uh, you know, we we live and die by those numbers, but I think taking ten minutes to make sure you're getting a good a good deal, I think, is is worth most of it. You know, for a small business owner, a couple thousand dollars in savings is. Yeah, it's a new a merchant system, or it's it's you know additional hours for employees, or you know whatever it is. I mean, it's, it's impactful. Right, absolutely. So basically, if I'm understand what you're saying, the way this would work is I'm you know I'm an agent, I'm out in the field, I'm talking to business owners all day, I've got existing clients, and so I would reach out to you guys, I would get my affiliate link. And then I could either put, you know, in the bottom of my proposals or I could, you know, tell them about it or email it to them and say, hey, uh, part of the savings I'm offering now is I, you know, I, I partnered with Talage to, to save you, you know, roughly 15% or more on your business insurance. And so you can just click this link. It literally takes a few minutes. You just go through and you can shop around different companies and they have a, a marketplace where you can find, you know, better rates and better deals on your business insurance. Is that, is that a good pitch? Exactly. Okay. Yep. And they can do kind of whatever they want with that link. If they, you know, if they're out of there and they have an iPad with them while they're in somebody's restaurant, um, I mean, they can kind of sit there while they did it right there. And it's, it's, it's pretty flexible with what you can do with that link. Sure. Okay, cool. All right. Um, and then give me that contact info one more time. So you mentioned it. I think it was an email address. What, where do they go or who do they email but to get set up on this if they want to do it? Yep. They just send a quick email to affiliates um, at talagins.com. So T-A-L-A-G-E-I-N-S.com. Okay. That was affiliates, plural, right? Affiliates, plural, yes. Got it. Okay. So affiliates at talagins.com. Um, awesome, man. Well, this has been really, really interesting. Uh, again, I really appreciate you guys coming on here. I don't normally have non-merchant services providers, but I just thought that you guys really had a unique perspective on going after small businesses in a way that our industry really needs to embrace, um, you know, with these referral networks and with the online marketing, and they just haven't embraced it yet. Um, any last tips? I always ask this on the podcast. Um, you know, people are listening that are in the same place you guys were a couple years ago. They just started their ISO and, and they're trying to sell, you know, merchant services in this case. Um, any advice that you guys would give about getting the business started off, you know, starting from scratch, maybe something you wish you would have known two years ago that you know now? <laughs> Probably a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. patience, um, especially the online marketing. I think it's, you know, uh, Matt had more experience in his previous careers than I did. Um, you know, so I kind of had the idea we give some money to Google and the next day, um, you know, we're all going to be millionaires, right, was kind of the fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I, I think it takes patience and it takes some trial and error and you have to be willing to, you know, ride it out a little bit. And so know that, you know, Google AdWords is not going to be a one-week commitment. You know, you're going to have to kind of budget for, you know, at least, a, you know, you know, a few, six months, whatever it is to kind of iron it out and, and get a feel for what's really going to be the return on that. And you know, you know what yeah, I, the one thing, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say the one thing that I would add is, is just as you're starting out, make sure you're doing kind of milestones from a customer acquisition perspective and do the marketing that's going to get you to those milestones. Don't worry about how you're going to need to be marketing when you want to be adding a thousand small businesses a month. You know, when your first day, you know, you, you want to get that first customer so you can do some things that maybe, right. um, from an efficiency standpoint, aren't going to be, you know, the long-term solution. And then when you get those first five customers, and it's like, okay, how do I get the next hundred? And it's going to be a new marketing plan. So don't worry about iterating. Just worry about getting to the next milestone. That's really, really good advice. I, you know, and, and kind of going back to what we we're talking about with the with the online marketing. That's so interesting to me. The longer I've been doing all the online marketing, the the thing that sticks out to me is it's it, like you said, it's not a magic wand, um, but it's it's also not a rocket ship. It's just hard work. Like. It's not that yep. hard to create your first Facebook ad campaign or to create your first Google AdWords. Like, 
you just go in and do it and you do a really bad job because you don't know what you're doing. Um, <laughs> right. And then you figure it out. And then the next day you try again and you do better. And it's just like prospecting. It's just like anything else. And so to me, it's just it's another avenue. And it's an avenue that, you know, right now there's like, I don't know, you know, 150,000 salespeople out selling credit card processing right now. Just like with you guys, there's all these companies selling business insurance. And so if you can figure out Facebook marketing for small business, if you can figure out Google AdWords for small business, it's a lot of hard work like anything else. But once you figure it out, it is a huge competitive advantage because there's not as many people that have figured it out for your niche yet, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing I'll say from a practical standpoint, um, all those guys you just mentioned, Facebook, Google AdWords, they have really good 1-800 support numbers. They really do. Don't be afraid to use those. You yeah. know, I mean, when you launch your first, when you know, when I launched my first ever AdWords campaign, I was on that 1-800 number every day. Right. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's part of the deal. Right. Lean on them. Learn from them. That's great advice. Well, hey, guys, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your uh, wisdom and knowledge with us. Hopefully you'll get a lot of people reaching out to uh, join the affiliate program and certainly look forward to speaking with you guys again soon. That was great. Thanks, Thanks, Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. You know, say the chargebacks are a buzzkill would probably be an understatement. Estimates, estimates on the costs associated with chargeback fraud alone range from $4 billion to $100 billion a year, which I think is a huge... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a okay. big, but even at $4 billion, it's a lot. <coughs> and, of course, the all-in costs of dealing with chargebacks are much greater. Plus, you know, merchants with persistently high rates of chargebacks run the risk of having their accounts terminated. The concept of chargebacks traces, ba- traces its origins back to the 1970s, uh, when a law passed uh, but called the Fair Credit, Credit Billing Act. The process was seen as protection for, co- for consumers against unscrupulous merchants, and it proved to be a boon for credit cards as usage soon began to skyrocket. But as fate would have it, chargebacks soon became an avenue for fraud. The problem is particularly acute in card-not-present environments. 48% of merchants recently surveyed by chargeback 911, which is one in a small army of uh, companies that specialize in chargeback right. remediation. Yeah, good company. Yeah. They identified CNP fraud as their biggest threat. Friendly fraud was cited by 28% of those merchants. Just 4% identified their own mistakes as a root cause of chargebacks. And I've received uh, similar reports from chargeback gurus, another company in that yeah. space. Yeah. Now, there are certain categories of merchants that are magnets for chargebacks, among them e-commerce sites, dating websites, travel agencies, and gyms and other types of businesses that have these uh, pay-ahead or subscription-type sure. services. Sure. Not surprisingly, industries that have particularly low chargeback rates include doctor and dentist offices, restaurants, and brick-and-mortar stores with tangible goods. Right. It's hard to say you didn't get that vacuum cleaner. Right. <laughs> Now, the chargeback process can be complicated and is constantly evolving, which is why firms like Chargeback Gurus and Chargeback 911 have emerged as, as important players in this space. Yeah. Over the past year, both Visa and MasterCard have announced changes to chargeback procedures, and they've explained that the new rules aim to make the chargeback process more fair, responsive, and are changing 
payments landscape. Yeah, it's still not very fair and responsive. No, no. Um, <laughs> but we'll be rec- we'll we'll be discussing that uh, some more with uh, Suresh Dakshina of Chargeback Gurus. I think we have him slated for an interview this month as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. But it seems clear that from everything I've heard and read, that the changes that Visa and Mastercard have announced are having an impact, particularly on chargeback fraud. But they also have potentially costly implications for merchants. Notable of these is a shortening of the time frames merchants have to resolve chargebacks from 60 to 30 days in most cases. There are also new requirements that merchants formally acknowledge chargeback claims. In the case of Visa, failure to do so could result in a fine of $0.75 cents to $2.50 per chargeback. And that's on top of the 20 to $100 per transaction fee merchants are already paying for right. having chargebacks. Right. But here's the kicker. Most merchants are unaware of these new requirements. A survey conducted by chargeback gurus, for example, found that just 12% of merchants even knew that the new chargeback re- acknowledgement requirement was in place. Yeah, well, and, and to me that goes to a core fundamental issue in our industry, which is the way Visa and MasterCard feel that they're communicating with merchants uh-huh. is it's filtered. Yes. Because really, they don't communicate with merchants at all. No. Not the kind of merchants that we think of. They no. communicate with Walmart, Walmart and Target. Target. But the other guys are like, oh, well, we have something on our website. Go go down the right. load this 500 page document. Yeah. And like for our business, you know, we do subscription stuff, and so we get chargebacks. You know, not. All the time, but you know, we get some chargebacks. Usually, right. once once or twice a month, we'll get somebody that disputes something. Sometimes it's a twenty nine dollar chargeback, and so you know, we'll Is get it a, worth it, right? We'll get a notice from the processing company that you know, hey, you know, you need to respond by three days ago. You know, and you're like, okay, I mean, it just is ridiculous. And then, of course, you're like, okay, I want to dispute this. Well. I would say I'd have to ask my assistant, but I would imagine that our, our win rate on these disputes, knowing that we have agreements, we have all this stuff in place, mm-hmm. and we win maybe 15% of the time. That's probably higher than most. Yeah, and if you fight it, it takes so much time, and then you're still going to lose money because you've got to pay the fees to, to fight it. You have to pay all the fees to fight it's it. It's just ridiculous. Exactly, which is what I think they count on, right? Right. So anyway, um, but the good news is that the, the new rules do seem to be having somewhat of a positive impact on chargebacks. An analysis by chargeback gurus of, of their clients found a 15 to 18% reduction in chargeback volumes and a 13% drop in bogus fraud claim disputes, which I thought was that's pretty significant. I think that's, isn't that what they also call uh, legalized shoplifting? Yeah, some people call it that. Where you, you know, <laughs> you, people go in and buy their flat screen TV, they wait, you know, until three days before the ending of the period of time when you can do a chargeback and then they file a chargeback, right. assuming that people won't, uh, won't, won't come fight looking it. for it, you know? You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, also among clients uh, surveyed by chargeback gurus, 17% said that they had started disputing chargebacks since Visa's initiative took hold last April. Mm. Again, because they're being educated by these people. Right. So, they're in a better position than a lot of guys. Right. Now, while while chargebacks can be a big problem for merchants, acquirers, acquirers, ISOs, and their sales partners do have important roles to play in the process. You know, for example, if a merchant dispute you know wants to dispute it they have to do that through their iso or their acquirer right 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 so i mean it's just as important for for you know it it's not something that just the merchants need to be aware of right right so many um isos and acquirers offer chargeback prevention and anti-fraud tools you know things like monitoring uh services that alert merchants when customers who initiate chargebacks try to place new orders 
Uh, there's also autom- they, many have also automated the chargeback notification and, and response processes, and they have like these you know online portals where merchants can check the status of their chargebacks, right. like you've talked about, right? Right, right. But there's also, I think, a role for that ISOs and agents can play in terms of educating merchants, particularly those in high high risk merchant categories, on how to avoid chargebacks. So I've pulled together a few of these recommendations sure. from, from a few places. Oh, good. Okay. So I wanted to just share that yeah, with everybody. Okay, merchants should maintain a negative database or list of customers and or card numbers that are frequent sources of chargebacks so that they can block future orders involving these card numbers or customers. Now, see, to me, that's that would be an interesting... Uh, almost a third-party service. I think it could be, a, and, and it's not unlike some of those negative databases that exist for right. check writers and so forth. And I'll tell right? you, like, somebody who, you know, it's it's actually, we ran into an issue, our company ran into an issue that's really interesting. Um, so Stripe, mm-hmm. they do this for their merchants. Right. Um, they will, like, you try to process a card, even if the funds are available, a lot of times they will, the Stripe will decline it. Uh-huh. Because they know that this card, this has, card had, has been used for. The problem with that is a lot of times it's very easy to go overboard. So an example, yeah. we had we were trying to pay for the services like $400 order for a software that we wanted for our company. Mm-hmm. And we're using our company debit card. Right. Never, never to my knowledge, have we filed a chargeback or had any issues whatsoever with this card. Uh-huh. And the funds were in there. We, oh, it declined. And so I called the bank. Hey, what's going on? We didn't even see it. And the, and so we called the, the uh, merchant and they said, oh, we use Stripe. And so if they flag it, we have our our thing set, and so it turns out with Stripe, and so this is kind of an interesting. If it's a debit card, no, it's an interesting side note. Is with Stripe, I never knew this, but they actually have the ability within their API to set your security parameters, uh. like how strict do you want to be, how careful do you want to be about chargebacks. I have no idea why ours was flagged. Maybe the size of the transaction. I'm yeah, not that's sure. That's what I'm thinking, right? The you know, size and that we were paying it annual, card. right? Yeah. But at any rate, whatever it was, uh, you know, it got flagged, and they and we asked them and said, like, well, what do we do? Like, this is the card that we use for this, and they said, and so eventually they did take it, and they made like an exception. So I thought that was kind of an interesting. I didn't realize that, um, you know, it was even possible to really do that. Uh-huh. But Stripe has this big database, so I think it's an interesting third-party play for somebody like a, a WorldPay mm-hmm. to consider. Of like, wow, they actually do have such a big database of, of cardholder payments that that they could they could identify people that are more likely to do a chargeback or yeah. something. You know, no, I, I think that you got to allow merchants, point. but you got. But I think if you're going to do that, you have to allow merchants the flexibility to say to set those parameters. Right. right. If I'm if I'm taking a fifty-dollar payment, I don't really care. Like, I'll take the risk. You know yeah. what I mean? Maybe right. that's chargeback maybe it's not but if i'm taking a thousand dollar payment you know if somebody's had some chargebacks i might be a little leery about taking that oh yeah yeah for sure okay another thing uh, limit multiple orders from the same customers perhaps on an hourly daily or weekly basis a lot of the gateways uh have this um with one of our solutions we use into my gateway and i know many others have this but they have something with our api where we can set um you know you, you can't run the same transaction during I think a two minute period for the mm-hmm. same amount or mm-hmm. something, and that'll keep people from accidentally running it twice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a. And they, they have all kinds of different settings you can adjust for that. Right. Right. Another another obvious one is use an address verification service. Uh, sure. That's yeah. That's a new no brainer. Um, collect customer phone numbers, particularly in e commerce, you know, card not present type things. Right. Call them back to confirm the orders. Yeah. Now I have to tell you, I've never had anybody do that with me, and I mm. wouldn't. That's not something I would. You know, I do a lot of online purchases, yeah. I, high dollar purchases. Sure. I would not be a bad idea. You know, I wouldn't consider it a hassle. Yeah. Hey, Miss Murphy, we got this order from you. Right. Can you just confirm it? 
you know, one thing I can tell you from my own experience with dealing with this is that the chargebacks, as far as card not present, um, the ones that we have won uh, have been where people have used the, so this is for software, right? It's ones where people have used the software. So, um, you know, the more data that you collect as a merchant, so like for us, you know, with our instant quotes, well, let's say as an example, if we have somebody that files a chargeback and we can go in and say, hold on a second, you know, here's the IP address, mm -hmm. which you got to grab, the IP address that the person, mm -hmm. you know, is at when they subscribed and it matches their address, you know, or their, their general right. geographic area. Um, then on top of that, we say, okay, we have the IP address, but also then that same IP address then logged into our system, created these three prospects and a quote on all three of them. Here's the dates. Uh -huh. Here's the name of the prospect. Right. So when you can put a sheet of data of like they actually used, used this it. thing. Right. And they got something for and it. And they were on a free trial or something, for instance. And then at the end of the month, we, yeah, we charged them. They, they used it and they didn't cancel. You know, um, those are the ones that we've won. The ones where you're pretty much going to lose is... You know, no matter how much of the stuff you do that you're talking about right now, right. if you're selling something and people are not actually using it, mm -hmm. you're going to lose the chargeback. There's just right. no way around it because they're going to look at it and say, you know, did they get value for this money they spent? And it's like, no, they didn't. Right. So whether they agreed to it or not, the bottom line is in, in the mind of the banks, it's like we don't care if they said, they, you know, it doesn't matter. Like we've sent them proof. Here's the IP address and all that. It's like show us the usage. Well, they, they never used it. Right. Well, then you lost. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's not really fair of, to the merchant, but I mean, that's just the way it but is. But it's just you know? the way it is. Yeah. 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 So let's see. What else do we have? Uh, okay. Obviously, make it easier for your customers to reach out oh, with yeah. problems. I mean, that's one thing, too. It's so, you know, used to, I would fight if I felt like a refund was unjustified. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to refund you. I don't owe you a refund. Well, then they file a chargeback. I still lose the money, plus I lose 35, 40 bucks right? in fees. Right. So I've pretty much gotten where if somebody, you know, I shouldn't publish this on the podcast, I guess, but <laughs> but if somebody calls me and says, you know, I, I want a refund for some reason, I mean, unless it's something where I feel like it's totally out of the blue, our company's just like, whatever, we'll refund yeah. your money. I mean, I had, I had <laughs> that know? case with somebody just recently, I can't even remember, it was a subscription service. I hadn't used a subscription in over a year. Yeah. Right? They charged me. I called them up and said, look, I haven't used this. I didn't mean for you to automatically renew it. Right. Well, and they didn't, and they didn't give me any satisfaction. Right. I called them twice. Then I went to my bank. Right. And then because you do your charge back, and you're going to win in any way. I and was going to win, and I, I knew I was going to get my money back, but it was like right. you gave them a chance to do the I right thing. I gave you the chance to do yeah. the right thing, and you didn't, and now it's going to end up costing right. you more money. And I think it's good to educate merchants that it's it's honestly like a lot of times you want to kind of stand on principle, but mm -hmm. the truth is even if it's not the right thing to refund them. You don't really feel like it's right, right. that you owe them. Most of the time, just refund them. They're going to get their money anyway. It's, it's just a matter of how many fees are you going to pay on top of it and how much you're going to damage your merchant reputation. Well, that's it. The merchant reputation, don't you think? I yeah, mean, absolutely. It's people terrible. Are, people can go online and they can complain about you within two minutes of of you hanging up right. telling them they're not well, going to and, and, and I mean, even even... You know, even explicitly, like your reputation as a merchant, like you know, like your processor is going to reach right. out and say you have too many chargebacks, right? And they're going to like you know put you in that high risk or something. Too. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So uh, let's look at what else. Obviously, request your C the CVV numbers as part sure. of the process. And really, I think probably the most important thing that that jumped out at me in all the various places where I researched this was. Just take the time to understand your customers and their buying habits. Mm -hmm. You know, if you know that Patty Murphy comes on at the beginning of the month to, you know, buy chewy, right? You know, sure. you know, chewed sticks for her dogs. Yeah. You know, yeah. then if Patty Murphy comes in on the last of the month, it's probably just the dogs Ooh. ate the chewies too fast. Right. Right. Sure, right. Right. So. I think too. I think a lot of that is. 
you know, merchants really can leverage technology because of these really good, you know, most processors now have a pretty good back office. Right. You know, you can run, pull your transactions and look at your transaction every month by highest transaction amount to lowest. Mm -hmm. Look at those first highest ones. Are there any of those that are a red flag? Call those people right. to your point earlier, right? Yeah, right. And, you know, reach out because that's, that's a high risk of a chargeback there. You know, the person that spent eighteen dollars and they've spent eighteen dollars every month for the last twelve months, you don't need to worry about that. No, but the know, person that spent nine hundred that you never heard of before might want to reach yeah, out to them. Yeah, maybe they spent nine hundred this month, but every other month they've only spent ninety, right? Right. And just reach out. Hey, is everything okay? Is how's everything looking for you? I saw that you you know, can thank you for your business this month. Right. And maybe at that moment they say, I spent not I meant to spend ninety. I said it was nine hundred and right. here your employee pressed an extra zero. Exactly. And now you, you can take care of it without any issues. Any issues, exactly. So I you know, I think, you know, the the bottom line if chargebacks do occur, make sure your merchants know that they need to acknowledge those claims. Yeah, you know, at absolutely. the very minimum, just acknowledge them. Yep. And then, you know, let the system do its thing. Yeah, I agree. Good stuff, Pat. Thanks. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. So in the last couple of weeks, Patty, I've gotten a lot of questions from agents about organization, you know, how mm. to get things done. Right. It's beginning of the year. People are trying to yeah. get their stuff together. We want together. to be more efficient, more right. productive. And um, uh, as you know, since I emailed you late last night, right. uh, you know, I have a very interesting organizational system that works for me mm -hmm. uh, and dealing with my hundreds of emails every day. Um, and so, you know, I've been sharing that a little bit with agents and talking about it a little bit more specifically, but I think one of the big issues that agents run into is that, you know, they don't understand that the way things get done is by doing them. Yeah. Not by thinking about them. Right. Not by prioritizing them. Right. Uh, not by putting it into the A, B, or C priority and then, you know, uh, and then looking at, you know, no, no, like right. things get done by doing them. Right. And so some really simple tips that I think will really help. And hopefully these will, these will hit home. It's not going to be a very long, uh, you know, segment for me today. Um, you know, tip number one, don't check your email unless you're ready to take time to answer your email. Important. So <laughs> important. I don't know about you, but before I started doing that, yeah, I would have 50 emails open because I'd be like, oh, I have to get back to that one, but I want to. Right. Right. And then I'd have to spend all day right. Friday going through all those right. ones. Yes. You know. Yeah. So one thing I've kind of learned is, you know, when you open an email, um, when you open that email, do one of three things with the email. Either number one, reply to it immediately. Mm -hmm. Take whatever action is necessary. Don't reply with, hey, I'm going to get back to you on this. Yeah. No, no. No. If you're going to do that, just don't check your email. Right. 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 Reply with this is done. Mm -hmm. And take the five minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is, to do the thing you need to do, and then reply and say, "I did this," and put it in on action. Or number two, delete it because you don't need to do it. Right. 
And there's a lot of that. I get more and more of that these days. It's, it's, it's funny. I was talking to my wife the other day about how tough it is for me because I've always been where I try to be really accessible, mm-hmm. you know, and then the agents, you know, I get, you know, I don't know, 200 agents a week email me with their questions. Right. You know, some weeks I'm just too busy. Yeah. And so I just go through and I, re- I try to do my best to respond to all of them and say, I'm sorry, I don't have time to answer your question. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you've got to just tell people no. Right. And, you know, that's just life. I mean, business is all about, I think, you know, if you're lazy, then business is about finding opportunity. Mm-hmm. If you're a hard worker, success in business is about saying no to opportunities. Yes. You know, and so yes. you really have to be willing to say no to like 99% of things so that the 1% you can focus on and you can actually accomplish something. Right. Sure. Um, so either take care of it or delete it or decide that you can't do it right now. There's some actual legitimate impe- you know, impediment to you doing this now. Maybe I need to talk to Susan and she's out today mm-hmm. or I need to be at my office for this and I'm at home, whatever. Then in that moment, decide when are you going to take action mm-hmm. and then move that email. So in my email inbox, I have a little folder. They call them labels in Gmail. Right. Right. But I have a label for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday uh-huh. and January through December. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. So if I get an email and I open it up and I say, you know what? I can't do that right now, but I'm going to take care of it on Friday. I just move it to Friday. Interesting. Very, Every day I open up that day and I move those back to the inbox. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then I, you know, at the end of the day, I try to get rid of them all. Sure. Sometimes sure. it takes me till 1.30 in the morning, like like uh, this like morning. last night or this morning. <laughs> right. So, you know, but that's just the way it goes. Um, but, you know, you got to go through them and you got to take that action. Or again, don't take action or decide you're going to take action later and then, you know, go ahead and put it in there. Yeah. Um, Another really good tip that will save you so much time, Um, if you're an agent especially, one thing I learned is as an agent when your phone rings, Mm -hmm. for some reason that can be a scary thing because your phone rings and you're like, oh, what is this? What could this possibly be, right? Right, right. The customer, maybe it's a customer that's upset, you know, maybe it's somebody going to waste my time, I'm so busy, whatever. Let me give you a really important tip if you want to get a lot of things done. Answer your phone. Mm -hmm. Now, you're with your kids or whatever. Turn your phone off. Right. But again, be very binary about it. Either you're on or you're off. Right. If you're working, answer your phone. Yeah. And what you'll find is very few phone conversations last longer than 30 seconds mm-hmm. and, or a minute with a merchant. You know, right, right. They, they have. And if you answer your phone, that does so much to help your reputation. Oh, yeah. People are like, oh, wow, this is the guy who always answers his phone. That's an important thing. Right. Versus you get a voicemail. Then you get a voicemail. Well, then you're like thinking about the voicemail for a week before you get to it. Yeah, before you get to it. And so just answer the phone, get it over with. Right. And then once you're having the communication, whether it's via email or phone or even text, you get a lot of text now, you know, sure, answer sure. your text real quick in your communication. Do your best to be honest. I'll, I'll share a, a interesting negative story from my side of, a, you know, me being stupid uh-huh. uh, in this area. So um, I have an opportunity. I won't get into the specifics, but I have, not, have an opportunity to do a business deal with somebody right now. Uh-huh. And so as I was going through my emails last night here, I have an email and a voicemail. Uh, and another email from the same person who I said about a week ago, yes, let's move forward. Here are the five things I'm going to do, right? Uh-huh. And I was too busy to do those things. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have honest communication. So last night I had to send the email that said, I want to sincerely apologize for not being self-aware enough to tell you that I can't do this right now. 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm sorry, it's a great opportunity, but it's one that I can't take advantage of. Or if I, if I can, I can only do these two things. I can't do these five. Right. Um, and so, you know, be willing to be honest, honest. and transparent. You know, right. when, when your merchant calls and says, you know, my terminal's down and you're, you know, an hour away and you're at your kid's basketball game and you know you're not going to leave for another half hour. Tell them. You tell them, you know what? I'm at my child's basketball game right now. Right. Here's the number for tech support at the processing company. Mm-hmm. I can get there in two hours. Like, give yourself even a little bit of extra time, you know, under promise, over deliver. Right. You hear that a lot. But the hard part about doing that is it means you have to tell people things that they don't want to hear, mm-hmm. whether that would be your spouse, whether that would be your friends, whether that would be your merchants, you know, whatever it is. Um, being honest and, and just telling people the truth in the moment it may seem like, oh, but I can make them so much happier right now if I said this. Right, but if you don't do it, you're not going to make them happy. No, then you're going to make them so upset. It's better to just be honest Mm -hmm. and then to come through on what you said you were going to do rather than to make some, you know, salacious promise that you actually can't keep. And also, don't you think, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it seemed to me, somebody said, say, look, I'm at my kid's basketball game. You know, they're in the third quarter. (laughs) I can be there in two hours. You know, unless it's like some earth-shattering problem right. that needs to be fixed right this moment, yeah. most people are going to be, oh, I understand. You're right, of course. Take care of your kid. I'll see you in two hours. Absolutely. Most people are very, you know, this is the thing people misunderstand, especially salespeople, is that business owners have spent their entire life pushing on things to make things happen. The, this, mm-hmm. you know, if one, anything is true in our society, it's that the squeaky wheel does indeed get the grease. Oh, yeah. Right? So they are conditioned to be that way so on the phone they may sound like look i need you to get here right now my terminal's down people are trying you know they're up they sound like they're upset and they're pushing but in reality that's just they're just trying to get something to happen right when you say i can't come there right now here's what i can do i can be there in two hours here's the situation that i have right they're usually very reasonable right um i'll tell you the other thing it's funny uh it's, it's sad i guess but kind of funny to me so many agents like delay the inevitable i was talking to an agent just a couple weeks ago he was asking me a question because he had a merchant where they had a clover system, mm-hmm. and they were really upset because he had sold them these, like, six clovers. It was a multi-location, right. and they wanted to do this certain thing that clover doesn't do. Mm. And it was it was the, the cutoff time for next-day funding. So they wanted to batch it, like, 11 o'clock at night and get their funding the next day, and the cutoff time was 8. 8, sure. And he's like, what should I do about this? I'm like, tell them. Yeah, like, what do you mean? What should you do? What, what are you going to What could you possibly do? You can't change the situation. And he's like, well, they're going to be upset. They're going to cancel. Then they're going to be upset and they're going to cancel. Like, what there's all you're doing is delaying the inevitable. Call them up and say, Hey, I can't do what you want. Mm-hmm. Here's what I can do. I can do this. So, what would you like me to do? Right. And if they say cancel, you got to sometimes you got to be willing to, you know, call the bluff. Sometimes, or just walk away if that's what it, right. That's so, what's necessary. I mean, it is what it is, but don't waste the next three weeks stressing about the deal. Right. Get the phone call. And trying to with. find some way to, you know, right. it's ramrod not it through it. You're not going to work. It's not going to work. work. Right. And again, no. that's where you go. And, you know, the funny thing is, as we talked, he had a perfectly valid solution where, you know, with Clover, he could have programmed it to auto batch at like 730 and midnight. Oh. You know, so they get most of their money so they get the most next of day. The money the next day. And he's like, well, yeah, but I told him that they said they didn't want to do that. Well, yeah, but that's because they probably don't even understand what. So you got to say, here's what I can do. I can do the, the batching. Why didn't you want to do that? Was there a reason? I'd be glad to help you with that. That's what I can do. Right. You want to buy eight. You, you know, the eight's the cutoff. Right. I can get you most of your money. Right. By, by the eight. next day. Right. And I said, they probably don't even understand. They probably think it's going to take 30 seconds. They're, all their clovers are going to be down. This is an IP connection. It's going to take three seconds. Right. So you need to educate and, you know, you come up with a 
solution and go to them and say, here's what I can do, here's what I can't do, and then let the chips fall where they're going to fall. But don't delay the inevitable. It's just stupid. Yeah, and I waste agree. your time and gives waste, you so much stress waste for no time reason. Waste your time, and it makes them more... Yeah, in the, in the end, they're not they're not happier because you lied to them for two right. weeks. <laughs> no, in fact, less happy. Exactly, of course. Right. So there you go. There's some tips that will hopefully help you out as you're organizing in this new year and trying to get things done. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.